0: Did we ever leave? Is this Schrodinger's podcast? Hey, don't start with that shit. What shit? That fuck shit. But we are proles who are poor.
1: Very poor. Not super poor, but you know. Poor, poor enough. Yeah, poor enough to, to be called poor proles. And this is, our alman- this is our almanac, which no one should have to stomach, but we got these microphones and we put it out into the ether, so... Uh, thanks for listening. I guess
0: so. It is Schrodinger's podcast. Like yes, we don't know. But if you don't there's... listen to it, it doesn't exist. Does it exist? Yes, exactly. We're there. We made it all the way around, right? Nice, nice. So uh, yeah, this is. I'm hoping. I'm assuming our last part of this illustrious story on American energy farming systems.
1: I mean, I kind of wish these guys fucked up more, but we'll just see what we'll see what we get through today. So
0: there's time. Don't worry. There's time we're gonna basically talk about the collapse of this company legally accounting wise it's It's just beautiful, not if you were their accountant if you if you were their accountant you you hated this. One thing I do want to bring up, and I'm hoping that this changes before we release this episode, is I did have the opportunity to share a couple emails back and forth with a banker from the town and who had actually been approached by Fred II about taking out a loan for this project, and he laughed him out of the bank. He had agreed to come on the podcast and talk about it. Then I lost contact with him. I hope he didn't die. He was older but uh, I hope between the time we've recorded this and then uh, when this comes out that I have talked to him and we've cut that in somewhere in here. Otherwise, no one's hearing this. But if I didn't, I do want to just bring it up because it was super awesome to like get that firsthand experience of like, no, he's exactly what you think of. Like, I I talked to him. He came to me with his business plan. I told him this was not a business plan, and he got mad at me and said I worked for Big Oil, and you know had to be escorted out. And it was just like beautiful. That's
1: exactly what we like uh, read about and looked at. Basically, when we were looking into this from the, in the first place. Was that's exactly what he's like. Yeah. So that, that's, cool, that's cool getting a, a testimony, our firsthand yeah.
0: testimony. Yeah, so uh, hopefully you are not listening to any of this, and instead that's somewhere cut in here. But if you are, sorry. So let's talk about this period, right, when the day of reckoning, right, when they knew their business was about to flop. Around like October 28th, or about as early as October 28th of 1982, Fred II, in one of his many lengthy letters to Dwyer, because of course he wrote lengthy letters. He acknowledged that there was no meaningful market for the Jerusalem artichoke at that point and said that, in quote, time is not on our side, end quote. Don't know where God was on that one. Hendrickson further worried about the legality of their practices, acknowledging that he had been, again, this is a quote from his letter, equally neglectful of attending to AFS details. Yes, that is a quote. A lot stood in the way of their uh, taking the advice of maybe paying attention to those details. One of the biggest challenges was what we talked about with Dwyer, I think in part two, where he didn't understand why the cash in the bank account wasn't actually theirs, and we talked a little bit in the last episode about the tendency of the company to treat the profits of the company as like their own, like individually, personally, as though they are interchangeable with the company, which is not how tax code works. When they decided to operate in 1981, they decided to operate under subchapter S of the IRC, the Internal Revenue Code. To operate under subchapter S meant that they were no longer treated as a seller of securities, but rather as a partnership. And this had to do with the whole, like how they were sharing equity and buybacks and all that stuff, right? The way partnerships works is that you're assessed taxes based on the profits that are taken out of the company. So like when you talk about S-Corps, You know they're considered like pass-through entities because their earnings basically go directly on your tax return.
1: Okay, so it sounds like he acknowledges that he knew what they were doing wasn't the right way to do it, but he was doing it anyway.
0: He might've, he should've. So like S Corp, like usually if you have like a small business and it's like literally your, you know, Elliot's painting company and it's just you as the employee and you go paint houses and they pay you and blah, blah, blah. Usually file a Schedule C, it's an individual proprietorship. The alternative to that is to do an S-corp, where you have this pass-through, and the idea is basically there's some tax benefits to that. I don't want to get into that. Not really important. The point is that they didn't really understand taxes. If you take money out, say because the company is about to fold, like in their example, all that money taken out is suddenly taxable. And there's reasons why sometimes you can or uh, you don't have to take out all the money for a business. I'm not going there right now. So now in the spring of '82, they had this whole issue about with the auditing firm that they basically were like. Listen, you guys don't know what the hell you're doing. Your accounting is is a disaster. Your business practices. You know, we talked about in the previous episode that they didn't understand the concept of like arm's length transactions. They weren't doing any of those things. They weren't separating themselves from the business at all. They were just like a disaster. Um, So the first accounting firm probably said, we're not going to represent you unless you do all these things. So they got rid of them. Now, among the things pointed out in this audit was the fact that the owners had taken from the company a million dollars more than it had earned. Again, remember what we were talking about. They've got this cash, but it's earmarked for buying these seeds back from their growers, right? Of the million dollars that over over a million dollars that had been taken out more than it had earned, 945,000 had gone in advances to Dwyer, and 142,000 had gone to Fred II. In July of '82, after this first accounting firm parted Way's surprise, the second accounting firm said the same exact thing because they didn't know what the hell they were doing, and the accountants do. That auditing firm was also ignored. And you know, clearly, they don't understand business the way Trump Dwyer does, right? In his grand testimony, um, when the auditors were testifying on like the state of the finances at the business, one of the auditors testified that his firm's pleadings and warnings about the irregular withdrawals were basically ignored by Hendrickson and Dwyer, and uh, they wouldn't commit themselves to a schedule of repayment, and they even canceled the completion of a financial statement in the spring of 1982. So they spent all this money and then just opted out of paying it back? Yeah, and you know what? Like, Here's the thing. When your business makes over a certain amount of money, you have to file financial statements. Mm-hmm. Uh, like it's not an option. And they're just like, nah, we're good. We're fine. We don't need this. We'll do that next year. Yeah. Like, no, that's not how it works. I like it. I, yeah. think, it's, I think that's funny. That's, that's <laughs> my favorite part of the story so far. Um, so the IRS was obviously like, yeah, no, here's your bill. But before we even get to that part, in the spring of 83, the business is still less than 18 months old. All of this has happened in 18 months. With AFS facing a severe cash flow problem because suddenly they're owing those second year growers some seed money and they've spent it all on Dwyer's little, we'll talk about that in a minute. And they've also got this eternal general breathing down their company's neck because they've been doing so many illegal things. They had another emergency audit. On the basis of their work, the audit company noted that AFS was, in quote, inauditable and gave them basically a checklist of all of the very serious <laughs> legal business violations.
1: So it was it was such a shit show. They couldn't even, like, quantify it <laughs> yeah. with, with the audit.
0: They're like, this is just this is too much. They just, gave,
1: they just gave them the rule book and, and circled the title yeah. in red and was like, you did all of this wrong.
0: Yeah, they just handed the book and said, read this, please, for the love of God. So the firm stated that the owners mixed company and personal funds, which we've kind of talked about, made frivolous use of AFS money, used corporate money for personal advances and payment of personal credit cards, showed no accountability for funds borrowed, lacked job descriptions for things that they spent money on, didn't regulate any purchases as in any checks or balances, and they didn't keep any proper books. As if that weren't enough, Ribbons, one of the accountants, remarked that he was unable to identify AFS's practice with a common ownership and even cautioned that the company might be considered a pyramid scheme. You don't say. Yeah, right? Who could have seen that coming? So no sooner did money begin to flow into the coffers that the owners began to treat it as their own. So, for example, on October 2nd of 1981, way at the beginning of this 18-month shit show, the company's checkbook was already overdrawn. Three weeks in. On October 30th, Dwyer withdrew $10,000 from AFS for personal needs. Now, throughout the entire time of the company, Dwyer managed to take $1.7 million in draws, loans, advances, while his company, Dwyer Inc., the construction company, took another $1.6 million for services and other uses. Now, Fred II, being the ideological purist here, definitely wasn't as bad. And um, he started off very small with withdrawals. But by the end, he had end up taking around uh, 770000 for his own personal expenses. So between the two of them, they, they took about $4 million. They also started themselves with salaries of $75,000 each per year in the fall of 1981. But by the fall of 82, they were giving themselves quarter million dollar salaries a year. Again, 1982, and that made them the best paid managers in all of Minnesota. So it's like the big shark the big shard joke. the big shard joke it works on so many layers so we talked about in the previous episode the dollar 20 a pound figure that they set the seeds at right where like they had to make this money because that's how this whole that's what they took advances on that they had this money coming right so what they did is they basically utilized that to count against any draws and advances that they took so they counted both their past present and future sales against advances out of the company bank accounts. Now this is like a really brilliant way on paper to like basically look like they're being smart. And the idea was that they would use the company funds to put down payments on things like personal farms, which they in turn rented back to the company at the handsome rate of like $200 an acre, which is like multiple times higher than the rate that was going on in Minnesota at the time. So they were drawing money both ways. They were borrowing money from the company to buy the farm and then making the company pay them to use said farm. And we talked about this whole idea of like arm's length transactions, right? They weren't doing anything to try to put a middleman in there. While they kind of would leverage the idea that it was being used for like crop research or creating a needed seed bank or anything like that, it also made it so that Fred II and Dwyer both owned a whole bunch of farms really quickly.
1: Okay. And it sounds like from the sums that you had mentioned earlier that Dwyer probably milked this like- Quite a bit.
0: Yeah, he was terrible. in a, In a grand jury testimony, one employee claimed that Dwyer Inc., his company, bought seed at twenty five cents a pound and then sold it again under the name Dwyer Inc. to AFS for fifty or sixty cents a pound. So he just doubled his money by. Making himself the middleman to his own company. <laughs> now, Dwyer had AEFs employee's wife, who had the power to sign AEFs checks. Two of his three sons, his uncle, his brother-in-law, and friends and acquaintances. Dwyer Inc., which charged AEFs premium prices, reciprocated by borrowing six hundred thousand in operating loans from AEFs without offering any assets to secure the loans. So they were charging a premium and then making the company give them loans. With no accountability if he never paid them back. What
1: could go wrong? I mean, it sounds like a, a perpetual, just self-funding ATM machine.
0: Yeah. What could ever go wrong with this business model? I just said ATM machine.
1: That's an inaccurate acronym. An acronym? It, y- yep, I did it. An ATM it. machine. A Fucking ATM, damn it. <laughs> uh,
0: so yeah, they did a whole bunch of shady shit. And we haven't even talked about my, my favorite character, Reverend Kramer. In the spring of 83, with Dwyer's full support, Kramer, our our good reverend, God-fearing televangelist, created a lending fund for growers who were considered to be too great a risk to receive a loan from AEFS, which, like, I want to know what is considered too great a risk for these idiots. Normally, under the presidency of his son Tim and bearing Kramer's spiritual stamp, it was called the Challenge Fund, for those curious. The fund provided Kramer with a means to get rid of the company's excess seed at no cost to himself or Dwyer. The fund gave seed to growers in exchange for interest on the seed and a two-year partnership on growers' future Jerusalem artichoke crops. Kramer turned Challenge Fund partnerships in other partnerships into more than $2 million of financial paper, which at face value or discounted could be used inside or outside AEFS to raise cash, pay debts, or even make religious contributions.
1: So they sign a no cost down loan with people with bad credit, and then they use that as collateral to do whatever the fuck they want. And this is all based on the dollar and 20 cent a pound figure that they arbitrarily chose at the beginning of starting this venture.
0: It. Sounds an awful lot like the banking sector in the early two thousands. Listened to them and took that model for the subprime mortgage crisis, right?
1: Yeah, it was pretty that, close.
0: That's with basically it. Yeah, pretty
1: close with the big chart. Yeah, the big chart choke.
0: Yeah, you really nailed it on that one. I got to give it to you. I'm good. <laughs> uh, so, in exchange for giving these desperate farmers a chance to survive in farming one more day. Kramer and Dwyer got rid of Seed, earned some interest, created a bunch of financial paper that, however dubious its value, had potential worth in the era of speculation. Kramer, again, our good God-fearing friend, contended that prior to filing bankruptcy, he had a New York, in his words, Jewish firm willing to offer him as much as $1.5 million for the notes at a discounted rate of approximately 35%. But before we get into the bankruptcy process and the circus that took place, we do have some goodies for you. Yeah,
1: this guy's such a piece of shit. But those goods that we have coming. Speaking in f- of sales, <laughs> those goods that we have. Uh, <laughs> God damn it, we have commercials. Just namely Patreon subscriptions. We appreciate it, but if we don't, we have commercials. Commercial. Howdy. Hello. Hang on. Let me let me try that again.
2: <clears throat> Hello, skeleton army that's aggressive
0: yeah i'm angel luna
2: i'm nash Flynn. welcome to death and friends
0: we're two comedians with a podcast it's very original of us quiet you it is a history tour about everyone's final destination
2: as an academic nerd i have a phd i almost sort of have a kind of have a phd anyway i've researched a lot of death history
0: and also i'm here
2: We'll talk about ways we die, ways we get buried, and ways we get remembered.
0: And we even make some friends along the way. Huh.
2: Is it a comedy podcast about death? Or a death history podcast that's funny? We have no idea. Mm.
0: Look, death can be tricky to talk about.
2: And even though we're talking about it, a lot.
0: (laughs) Just please know, in fact, remember, that you are loved, you matter, and if you don't want to be your own friend, we will happily be your friend. Put me in your top eight, baby. Join us! And listen to Death and Friends.
2: Become a member of the Skeleton Army. Like right now. Do it. It's mandatory. Go on. Subscribe. Hit the button.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep. Give me a yep. You will it. Did you do it? Yes? Okay, good. Okay. Love you. Love you. Death and Friends Podcast.
2: Available everywhere you listen to podcasts. Death?
0: Welcome back to the final chunk of this three-part, four-part series. However many parts we've been going, and how many uh, parts? I
1: think this is part four. This is. We part did a four. terrible job in the introduction. This is part four of the AEFs American yeah, we, Energy yeah, Farming System. That. Artichoke. Uh, we're fifteen, 15, 20 minutes in. It's fine.
0: We got there. That's all that matters. We got there. Like you know, just like, just like this bankruptcy. You know, we knew we were going to get there eventually.
1: We were getting better, and I think we're starting to get worse again. We're backsliding, bud.
0: Yeah, it's okay. Regression in this case, I feel like our regression is better than what's going on in the actual episode. So, like, I'll take it. Fair enough. The bar is pretty low after Fred the Second. So let's let's uh, let's get in there. We still haven't actually introduced one character that's really uh, integral to the story, and his name is Jim Nichols. Now, this guy was a farmer. He was a teacher, and he was actually even a state senator. And he grew to hate AFS with like. A weird obsession because like I don't understand why you wouldn't hate these guys, right? Like they're they're brilliant and smart and thoughtful and caring. And he he went out of his way to make his life basically obsessive about AEFS. So he was appointed commissioner of agriculture in January of 1983 in the state of Minnesota and he pushed the attorney general's office to broaden its investigation of AEFS. Nichols himself couldn't bring himself to believe that a crop that cost its buyers 1000 an acre for seed, alone, in contrast to like corn that costs like 10 or $15 an acre, and for which there was no identified market, was going to help the troubled farmers. Who would have thought that maybe there was something suspicious about that? Now, while numerous Midwestern attorney general's offices accused AFS of overestimating the promise of the crop, and of not disclosing the fact that there were no markets for it, its essential conclusions were that this was a case of And this is a quote, not such smart consumers doing some bad buying.
1: Oof. So I guess this guy comes through and he sees some tomfoolery and farm fuckery going on. And I guess once you get it, once you get a good look at AFS and you see how just shady it looks on the outside, you start to dig deeper. And I'm guessing he didn't like what he saw.
0: Yeah, he went full Colombo on this one, like real bad. Good,
1: Good for you, Jim Nichols.
0: Yeah, good for you, Jimmy Jimbo. Now, the Minnesota Attorney General's Office had reached an agreement with AFS, right? Without having to acknowledge the wrongdoing on its part, the company would pay the state forty thousand dollars in fines, change its sales practice, and uh, offer its growers a rescission of their contracts. Remember, we talked about this when, like, only like one or two people said, like, "Yeah, I'll take the rescission." The rest of them told the government to get out of their business. This is what we're talking about right here. So, the the rescission could amount to about an eighteen million dollar payback.
1: Right. And if you've been listening, this is the second time they've had to offer their buyers a chance to rescind their contract, which I mean, I don't it's not great.
0: <laughs> yeah, so like this is the second time this has happened. And uh unlike the last round where um the farmers told them that they needed to keep their nose out of agriculture. Yeah. The second rescission offer got a surprising number of takers. This was due to the advanced publicity given settlement between AFS and the Minnesota Attorney General's office by a February article in The Farmer. Approximately a quarter of their growers, nearly 600 farmers, the great majority of whom were second-year growers rather than the original and more committed three-year growers, quickly accepted the offer. Now, unsurprisingly, with only 2 to $2.5 million in cash on hand, AEFS was not able to satisfy the six million in growers' claims. I mean, they,
1: they weren't prepared, or they might have been halfway there, but they spent
0: it all. Oh, yeah. So they, they absolutely knew this was coming. Since the late fall of 82, Dwyer, Hendrickson, and Kramer had already begun to prepare their own lifeboats. As the company's legal problems mounted in their efforts to transform the artichoke into a viable crop failed, each already had begun to look beyond what came from A F S. On December thirty first, nineteen eighty-two, the last day of the year, New Year's Eve, Hendrickson, Fred II, took a cash advance and loans for over half a million dollars. So out of that seven hundred thousand we talked about, half of it like five hundred of it came right then. As bail. Yeah. Basically, like like how do you not think that's suspicious? Now, Kramer, our good friend the Reverend, took another two hundred and eighty thousand and Dwyer, the king of theft, took six hundred and eighty seven thousand for both his business and himself. On the very eve of retaining a bankruptcy attorney on May 10th, Dwyer, Hendrickson and Kramer took almost everything left in the coffers, which, by the best calculations of their prosecutors, was about six hundred and eighty-six thousand. Among their distributions, they gave their attorney's firm cash for future legal fees in the accounting firm to handle the bankruptcy. The remaining four hundred thousand that they had, they split among the three.
1: Okay, so the IRS didn't notice any of that?
0: Yeah, I mean, the government isn't great at all the things it does, but uh, when they know you've got money you're hiding, they're going to notice.
1: That's what I thought. That's what I thought. Yeah.
0: yeah, usually, you know, I don't know. Who knows? The evening of May 20th, 1983, the annual assembly of the AEFS Christian Family of Growers had its last supper. Much like Jesus, obviously.
1: So do you think they were all sitting on the same
0: side of the table? With Fred II with a cup of wine?
1: Yeah, who the fuck eats dinner like that?
0: Fred II. That's who. I just think it's weird. Maybe Fred the First came to them in a dream. We haven't talked about Fred the First in a long time. I miss him. (laughs) He was the guy that was walking around with sunchokes in his pockets talking to random people. Good dude. Trying to sell it. The promised land of the sunchoke. Promised fruit, baby. Yeah. So they had this dinner on May 20th. Three days later on May 23rd, they filed bankruptcy officially. It was claimed that it had 19 million in unpaid debts, and with considerable exaggeration, that it had 11 million in assets. A few months later, when the federal bankruptcy court in St. Paul converted their Chapter 11 bankruptcy to a Chapter 7, the court custodian claimed that AFS had even less than a million dollars worth of assets.
1: Uh, Depreciation is a bitch, I guess.
0: Yeah, it sounds a bit like... Uh, remember when Trump was like, oh, I have this much in value, but on taxes, I only have this much, and then the government was like, neither of those numbers is accurate? Is that...
1: Was this, the, was this before he ran for president, when everybody was like, oh, show us your taxes?
0: Yeah, this was in the 80s, so I mean, Trump was only a casual douchebag that was like occasionally in the news.
1: Wow. This is back in the 80s?
0: Yeah, this is 83.
1: Damn.
0: <laughs> so Trump is was... The poster child for this type of sandbagging.
1: Yes. Okay. I got it. I understand now.
0: Okay. (laughs) Just forgot for a second because we're talking about such high numbers for the 80s.
1: Well, kind of. And this story is taking place in 83, but you know what? Never mind. It's fine.
0: Okay. So these final days for AFS were really a perfect case study of the legal actions that Dwyer and Hendrickson had learned up to this point. This is something reiterated by District Attorney General Peter Casall from McLeod County when he would charge cases against Dwyer, Hendrickson, and Kramer after the finalization of AFS existing. So after everything was said and done, the auditor for their bankruptcy estimated that of the $26.2 million that AFS took in, Dwyer and his family received in cash or check $1.9 million. Fred received $680,000, and Kramer, along with a few others we don't talk about, got another 2.3 million. So out of the 26 million about 5 million went directly into those bank accounts.
1: Okay, so I thought it would be a little bit worse than that. That's not it's not terrible for what they had their hands on, but it also sounds like they ran their business into the ground also while taking out money.
0: So I think it's really important to think about like what we're talking about is literally just money going into their bank accounts. We're not talking about the bullshit like we opened a shell company to buy a farm with their money and right. then now we own it and we took out this loan without collateral. So like the business can't come back and take it back. So like the business doesn't have any asset in that farm because there's no collateral. Mm-hmm. So like that doesn't include all of that shit. So this is just like the raw, terrible, like not hiding anything, just being like, I'm taking money, just taking raw money, raw dog in that shit. Also, it's worth remembering that like, Every meal, every plane ride, every French trip that they took, cars, and so on, those are not cash or check received. While we don't have a clue at what those expenses were, it's suspected from people that have done some research on this that about 75% of the money that the company received of that 26 million was spent in this way, like just bullshit that didn't have anything to do with their business. <laughs> That's so awesome. It's so bad. It's awesome. So as the growers became increasingly aware that something was wrong before the bankruptcy announcement, reacting to the Minnesota Attorney General's findings right before that, three-year growers sought an alternative path to AFS. I warned you of this earlier. So in June of 1983, the Minnesota Artichoke Growers Association, which went by MAGA, was formed in order to make sure Minnesota growers were represented at the July bankruptcy hearing.
1: Yo, fucking MAGA.
0: Right? Fucking MAGA. Showing up in 1983. So starting in 1984, the government filed a succession of liens against Dwyer's properties, even his house, for which AEFS had made payments towards his mortgage. Normal business stuff, right? Normal business stuff. I don't know about you, but my company pays my mortgage, too. Like, don't they? I guess,
1: but is it at fucking arm's reach because they're not doing it illegally? <laughs>
0: yeah, about that. They
1: pay you, Would you pay your mortgage.
0: Yeah, they do both, and it's not taxable because you didn't pay, you didn't get it in your paycheck. Obviously, that's how that works. Sweet, that's totally not true. Don't don't listen to that advice. That is not legal tax advice. The, no. So they, <laughs> we need so many disclaimers. <laughs> this episode, don't take any tax advice from this episode. How much is at a legal all? team? Do oh we have any God. lawyers? Does anybody we don't wanna, have a lawyer?
1: Does anybody want a pro bono Andy? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm going to need it. Please, if you're listening and you're an attorney, please check in with us. We're not fine. So uh, during this time, when this succession of liens started taking place against Dwyer's property, they uh, garnished 130000 in funds held in a Colorado bank for Pegsons, a new contracting firm owned as the name indicated by Dwyer's wife, Peg, and their two oldest sons. I love the name Peg. It's So fun. Pegsons, though? Like, your sons are getting pegged? Or is Peg... Pegging sons. Are you using that as a verb? Could be. Could be both. Peg is pegging pegsons. I don't know.
1: That's terrible. And I don't know what, I don't even know what your internet cookies look like.
0: Yeah, no, not that. That search history sounds fucked, bro. So, like, there's something really interesting here in that, like, people, and I'm an accountant, so I shouldn't say that on air because, like, I don't want people, again, taking anything I say as the word of God, but... Like, people have this idea that you can, like, start a business and put it in your spouse's name and suddenly, like, you can just be like, I'll file married filing separately and I'm not going to be held accountable or some bullshit. And, like, they think that they're so smart by doing this shit, by, like, putting things under people's names, but not changing anything else about the business. And it's just, like, it doesn't work like that. There's always some guy who says, my friend did this and it worked. And I'm like, no, they're lying to you or they're committing fraud. Those are the two options here.
1: Yeah, usually the latter.
0: Yeah, usually the latter. So, anyways, our buddy uh, Nichols, who uh, pushed this investigation, who is, you know, Mr. Colombo, he left some really great commentary on his experience with the AFS crew, saying that, and quote, their sort didn't prepare for bankruptcy, end quote. They were not brilliant at laundering money, as I just kind of commented.
1: Yeah, I guess that's really not a great look for, especially when it's coming from a guy who does this for a living and basically says, you guys are bad at... You're bad at hiding
0: money. <laughs> yeah.
1: Like, basically, he's like, I hide money for a... Li- I, I don't even know. I can't wrap my head around it. It's I track kinda, money of It's kind of yeah. too stupid for me to even, like...
0: Ugh, it's dumb. Yeah. It's, it's bad. So they, they found money for these guys stashed all over the place. From things like insurance premiums to confiscated tax returns. Like, any money they thought they could sneak into their bank accounts, he got... Even like at an auction for AFS's goods, some goods from Dwyer Inc. and Dwyer's family were held in the parking lot of the AFS main building as they were doing this auction. So like he grabbed anything that was slightly related to AFS and said, like, "This is on the chopping block to pay your debts." Of all the things that they auctioned off at this event, they uh, netted about 350,000. Here's where it gets really good, though, in my, one of my favorite parts of this story, in this auction Dwyer decided to attend and he decided, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to wear a bulletproof vest. I don't know about you, but when I go places where people like me, I wear bulletproof vests. So he knew people, <laughs> there might be
1: people out there who want to kill might him. Might be a
0: little fucking angry. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Okay. So all of this, uh, doesn't it point to, they knew they were like, they had a gravy train growing and they acknowledge that by acting like the way they do. Like there's an, I don't know. It it doesn't scream, like, guilt, but, like, they knew what they were doing was wrong.
0: Here's the thing that fucking blows me away about this little bit of the story, is that, like, he went to this event, he wore a bulletproof vest, because he's like, somebody probably wants to kill me that's here. He went and, like, talked to his friends and, like, some former growers... He stood there, like, talking about the things that were on the desks that were for sale and auction and all the good times and all the money they made. And he even, like, asked a couple of his friends to purchase a few things for him because he couldn't because any money he had was, like, back to the... Seized? Yeah. So, like, he, like, had friends buy shit from his company that was going under who worked for the company.
1: What a piece of shit, dude. What a jackass. Right? Like, and, oh, No, I don't know. It just sounds like very full of himself,
0: very narcissistic. Or or delusional, or something. Something is off. Now, the bankruptcy case was finally closed on September 15th of 89. As part of the final settlement with the bankruptcy court, Dora had agreed to a non-dischargeable debt of $815,000, which means no bankruptcy, nothing can get rid of that debt. He's probably going to pay that for the rest of his life. Kramer also received a non-dischargeable debt of $250,000 and Hendrickson uh, also got a non-dischargeable debt of $50,000. Obviously Kramer and Dwyer couldn't and ultimately didn't ever pay their debts. At least as of the most recent thing that I had read on it, Dwyer, who on the eve of AFS's bankruptcy owned several companies and farms, again, from the company and all of their little backdoor ways of buying shit. Remarked, I haven't paid them anything yet. I don't have any money. I'm busted, end quote.
1: Yeah, but he had enough money for a bulletproof vest. I don't know. If you feel like you need to wear one, maybe don't go. Or just right. like fully kit, like, kit up and just go, get out there.
0: <laughs> go big or go home. Yeah. Yeah. All of them still had more difficult judgments coming for them, as well as some really beautiful final acts of stupidity. Now, in the wake of declaring bankruptcy, Dwyer, Hendrickson, and Kramer continued to scramble for money. They even boldly entered claims in bankruptcy court against AFS for unpaid wages and seed deliveries.
1: (laughs) So why? That's bold, right? Why would you even wear a bulletproof vest if you're clearly got balls of steel? Because these guys just went out there like they don't give a fuck.
0: Yeah, they're like, we know we stole all this money. You know we stole all this money. But we have these unpaid paychecks. So... We're going to file bankruptcy against those. That's, that's insane. <laughs> so you know who else has balls of steel, though? Do you know, Elliot? Am I supposed don't, to know? Don't, don't, don't say yourself. Am I, I was going to say, am I supposed to know? The people who put the commercials on this podcast.
1: Yeah, can confirm. I wonder who we're talking about.
0: Hey there, it's Andy from the Poor Poles Almanac, and- And we're not the Poor Poles Almanac. You're right. We are tomorrow, today-
2: and I'm Nash Flynn from Death and Fronts. Tomorrow today is our chance to talk to folks about cutting-edge research that helps us understand what tomorrow looks like, but today.
0: We've got exciting guests. And we'll speculate wildly about what the future looks like. Will the ocean currents slow down in your lifetime, leaving temperate climates decimated? Will we go to Mars? Will we drown in climate-induced ocean floods filled with microplastics?
2: Will new research rewrite the history our children read? Will the sun... Is this gonna be another Doomer question? No. Tomorrow, today, wherever you get your podcasts and also on Instagram.
0: So now in the spring of 84, attorney Peter Kasall summoned a county grand jury to investigate AFS and its officers and its managers. Initially, they dismissed this investigation by a small-time country attorney, especially considering they had ongoing investigations with the FBI, the Minnesota Attorney General's Office, U.S. Postal Inspectors, Federal Bankruptcy Court. They're busy.
1: Yeah, what's one more government organization after you? Since you know, all of the every branch of government is after you already.
0: Yeah, and underestimating Kesel proved to be like a very significant mistake on their side. Kesel had been uh, pursuing AFS since the company's bankruptcy had cost several of his friends and acquaintances money. At least on the surface, it made little sense that a county attorney from like a rural county sixty miles away would pursue a criminal case against Hendricks and Kramer and Dwyer when no one else did. Altogether, irrationally, the three men suspected that Kaysen was the agent of someone else, <clears throat> oil. <laughs> so they, they uh, actually postulated that he was a pawn of Hubert Humphrey III, who in turn was an agent of Dwayne Andreas of the corporate agricultural giant Archer Daniels Midlands.
1: Ah, uh, yes, the secret Kaysel Cabal out to protect King Corn and Big Oil.
0: Right? I mean, how is that never a like news article title? The secret case of Cabal protecting King Corn, The story of the David and the giant, David and Glith. Write that down. We
1: can make that a kid's game and sell the shit out of it.
0: Oh yeah. We're we're gonna do that. When there's a game coming out about King Corn, you're ready. Y'all be ready. So in their defense, there was a connection between the Humphrey family and Dwayne Andreas from Archer Daniels Midland. So instead of it being this like big like secret. Like King Corns coming down on you for trying to take his market. It's actually a much simpler reason. He was just helping his friends. But he was also, conveniently, preparing to campaign for US Congress against incumbent Vin Weber, who was a young Republican whose star had risen high during Reagan's presidency.
1: So it's connected to some politicians.
0: Well, yeah, he he wanted to run for politics, and he thought that uh he thought having a, a case that already kind of had a high profile behind him. Would help quite a bit. So at the end of October, the multi county grand jury brought indictments against all three men. They were indicted for the diversion of corporate assets, theft, and theft by swindle. Dwyer and Hendrickson were charged with additional theft counts. With these indictments in hand, they were confident they would convict the three men. Their confidence, however, was crushed when they discovered that the very spring the state legislator had de facto repealed the criminal statutes, defining the diversion of corporate assets by failing to include them in its redrafting of the pertinent section of the statutes.
1: So the government came through and had already basically made it so that what they did wasn't illegal anymore.
0: Yeah, they, they really knocked it out of the park because I think it was an accident in that process. Like they didn't mean to do it. This
1: sounds like government. Yeah. I mean, I don't know.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it's, so, so, it's so standard. I'm not, I don't know. Right? Yeah, it's good. Right? It's good, I guess. It's good. Yeah, it's on brand. It's on brand for everything we've talked about at this point. So a week before they were to go to trial, Dwyer, out of money, pleaded guilty to the charge of theft by Swindle. Dwyer was sentenced to 180 days in jail with work release, which he served in El Paso, Colorado, starting in January of 1988. For theft by Swindle, the judge sentenced Dwyer to one year and one day of jail and five years of probation. The most recent record I could find on him, doing some digging since like all the, basically after this had happened, no one really cared. He had divorced his wife and had moved to California to start a new construction company.
1: And he wasn't trying to bring his new and improved crop with him this time? Because I mean, it it sounds like the variety when they had like the, they picked the wrong strain for the Jerusalem artichoke. It sounds like where he ended up was like better (laughs) than where he chose in the first
0: place. Yeah, it could have been. I think that's irony. Yeah, it's it's something. I'm pretty sure if he never heard the word artichoke again, he'd probably be pretty happy after his little prison stint. Hendrickson was also found guilty of theft by swindle and conspiracy to commit theft by swindle. While he succeeded on appeal in defeating the first of the two counts against him, conspiracy to commit theft by swindle, he could not convince a higher court to set aside his conviction of theft by swindle. The judge sentenced him to serve six months in prison. Learning absolutely fucking nothing, Hendrickson in the years following continued to start new companies that were, surprise, basically the same exact fucking thing. The idea of cooperative farming around sunchokes for fuel production. Hendrickson prophesied that God exposed to his people seven years of famine to open their hearts. Hendrickson saw a new age for the American farmer amidst a world famine. The world would end soon for some unexplained reason, within 37 years, as he wrote on July 17th, 1986.
1: Uh, so if I do my math correctly, which I'm terrible at, especially when I'm stoned, that's like in a couple of months, isn't it?
0: Yeah, that's like that's like in a couple months. So, yeah, it seems like he uh, he could be on to something with that 2023. But to fast forward a little bit after his little adventure here, trying to uh, bring the world the artichoke after a number of attempts, in 1991, he'd moved on from this, this dream, and he instead now worked on a canning line, and he stated that he identified with the urban underclass now.
1: Yeah, I guess that's how that works, and- it's too bad nobody's come around and tried to swindle him out of his hard-earned money.
0: Not yet, or maybe, maybe they have, to be honest. The interview that I, I was able to take a listen to, or read about, rather, in 1991, um, this is a quote. He says, he wondered out loud if he were to be its leader, meaning the urban underclass. He thought so. Assuming history repeats itself, he suggested the workers would rise up in 1992, as they did in 1892. End quote.
1: 1992. Feels like something happened in 1992. Oh yeah, it was Rodney King and the riots. Was it April? Yeah, I guess I'll give him that one. It's close enough.
0: Was Fred the second there? I think we need to Photoshop his face on a bunch of Rodney King riot stuff. Leading the revolution. Now, our last good friend here, Reverend Kramer, was found guilty of theft and theft by Swindle. Four jurors, including the jury foreman, who were interviewed a little more than a year after the trial, offered different reasons for their judgment. There's only two that I think are particularly interesting, especially given how we've talked about Kramer at this point. One juror had reported that another juror had held out against finding him guilty because he was a minister. And uh, she herself said that Kramer reminded her of Billy Sunday, and he looked like a city slicker. That is a quote, looked like a city slicker. Another juror said that guy just wasn't on the up and up, and that's who decides if you're guilty or innocent. Elliot. I mean,
1: I'm, I'm shaking, and I have chills running up my spine because I just couldn't imagine that these are the people who decide whether you're guilty or not. (laughs)
0: that you looked like a city slicker yeah he looks like a city slicker he looks like he sells drugs (laughs) i do i do look like that (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's not not a, a good look for uh democracy we'll say unsurprisingly though after our kramer made his way through this disaster he went back to hawking religious shit. And in later years, Kramer was concerned about the takeover of America by outsiders, including his friends, the investors, the, the Jews. <laughs> the, as Jew he said. Firm,
1: the Jew firm. The <laughs> yeah. Jewish
0: firm. Oh, my God. And uh, <laughs> he believes it- he was. <laughs> Go ahead. No, it's guy. He's just such a gem. I love it. It's he's beautiful. Now he believes that he was the victim of a massive vendetta carried out against him against by other evangelists to get at Pat Robertson so that Bush could win the Republican nomination. Yeah, just just let that soak in.
1: Yeah, I. This needs to be a movie. Just that last <laughs> bit right there. Just really, I don't know. It just keeps getting better.
0: Yeah, I think we should stick with the big shark and make that like its own miniseries.
1: You think so? And then we should do the game for the, the, the kids, King Korn. We've, yeah. we've got ideas. Nope, this is an untapped content. story. This is an Not, untapped story.
0: Yeah. And they're all criminal. The world criminal. needs to know.
1: They're all criminals, so they can't make money off of it anyway, so we'll do it.
0: Hell yeah. Someone's got to do it. <laughs> Hit me up, Netflix. I got your next miniseries. <laughs> Booyah. Yeah. That might be more of a peacock story than uh, Netflix.
1: We'll put it on Tubi. b
0: Uh, So hopefully you guys enjoyed this. Uh, It was a lot of fun to to learn about and uh, hopefully you guys stuck around because this is just a wild little story of three people that managed to just do so much damage in so little time. It's just really impressive.
1: They started a cool ass pyramid scheme on farms and just wreaked havoc in the Midwest. They did it with tubers. They did it with fucking sunchokes. That's so fun.
0: Yeah. It's it's just like, it's one of these plants that people in like circles are like super obsessed with. So like how does this story not have like more knowledge because it's just so it, it it's just wild it blows me away so if you guys listened to it enjoyed it and want to learn more about this because there is more that we cut out i got most of the good stuff but there were some other things i was just like we're going four episodes how how long are we? we're not just a sunchoke podcast uh not I yet love
1: how, i love how deep this story goes though there's like There's politicians, fucking... Televangelists. uh, Yeah, televangelists. Like, celebrity televangelists. Like, it's just so crazy.
0: Yeah. We didn't really even talk about his... um, Did we talk about his hospice nursing care facilities that all went under.
1: God no, we didn't. Oh, we that didn't. sounds Shit.
0: fucking horrible. How did we miss that? So Reverend Kramer, he um, also owned a bunch of like one of his things that he invested heavily in was like nursing homes and his whole business went under because they were ran terribly and they were down in Texas and part of the money he was pulling went down there to keep that business afloat as long as he could. And basically he would just show up randomly and people are like who is this like dude that looks like a pimp from minnesota down here trying to like tell us how to do our job so yeah there's there's just so much to this story if you want to learn more who's the uh, city slicker yeah who's the city slicker
1: i want to make fun of it but that's actually really scary because people like if people were in that man's care they probably died
0: (laughs) so there's more criminal activity in there Uh, like that's
1: that's crazy
0: it's so so this dude Joseph Amato wrote this book called The Great Artichoke Circus. Go check it out. It's it's chock full of good content. And um you'll you'll be so tired of hearing about sun chokes. But you'll probably have a lot of fun. So hopefully you guys enjoyed this.
1: Yeah, that's insane. Thanks for thanks for sticking along with the ride. That's a long four parter, but we had we to did. get it all we had to get it
0: all out. Our first four-parter. Thank you guys so much. We will see you next time. If you enjoyed this, please, please give us a review on iTunes or Spotify. Super important. Um, It just makes us stand out a little bit more. We are just cranking away. We've got so much more fun content coming. Elliot, what are we doing next week? Do you know?
1: I I don't even know what year it is. We we said we we established that like two paragraphs ago. Oh,
0: we've got a great... A great one! That's going to be a multi-parter too coming up. Uh, Efrain Hernandez. We're going to be talking about Mexico's Green Revolution and student rev- uh, revolts, and um, yeah, it's going to be a good time.
1: Nice. Well, yeah. that's
0: Andy. I'm Elliot. We might have Matt next time. Is Matt here? He's not here. No, we he's missed not Matt here on this one. No, he's too we'll get, busy for us. I guess we'll get
1: him know. in on the next one.
0: Yeah. This so, is the Poor Carlos
1: Almanac. Later, y'all.